Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In an international podcast, Tom rings in from Sao Paulo to hear Jay more about the Patriots' first loss of the season and take a look at some of the following stories. The Hoskin trial goes to the jury. Dylan Toker reports in Wall Street Journal and Clara Hudson on GIR. What are the implications from the you know on guilty plea? Tom takes a deep dive into the situation. Will the Supreme Court do away with profit disgorgement? If they didn't take the case, what else do they expect to do? Lawyers from Sullivan and Cromwell uh, opine, and Adam Dobrik takes a look. CCI starts a great new section entitled New Voices, focusing on young compliance professional. The first piece is by Margarita Del Relinco on Confessions of a New Mom and Compliance Professional. Jonathan Marks is back to tell us about risk, risk management reputation and does not have an end or date or a start date. Yet more out, fallout from the Conley decision. How about planning and post-acquisition integration, Jay explores for us. Spain brings a corruption prosecution, Jonathan Rouse reports, and the new DOJ task force on procurement fraud. Matt Kelly delivers sharp thinking and radical compliance. We have a five-part podcast series from Tom Fox and Ronnie Feldman celebrating Corporate Compliance Week that we tell you about. And finally, the This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance coming to you today live from Sao Paulo in This Week in FCPA, episode 179 for the week ending November 8th, 2019, the appropriately named Live from Sao Paulo edition. Uh, I am joined, as always, by Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors. Jay, welcome. Hey, Tom. How are things down in Brazil? They are wet, they are warm, and they are good. Uh, we had uh, I had a great week of training. I uh, gave a keynote at a conference. It was extraordinarily well-received and um, uh, so, met some new, made some new friends, met some old friends, and uh, really had a great week. Uh, I'm a, I was a little disconcerted that I leave you alone for one week with the Patriots and you lose. So uh, I'm not quite sure what the causal effect there is, or if it's causation, correlation, but it's clear you can't be left alone in the United States with the Patriots again. So maybe I shouldn't leave the country during this season. They are on a bye this week. So if you want to extend your trip to Brazil, you should do it. We're safe. Well, Jay, we had just a heck of a week in uh, the FCPA and we're still going to have one. I don't know if we'll have news uh, on the Hoskins case before this uh, podcast goes live. We might, but uh, What's going on with Hoskins? 
Well, we've got a couple uh, articles that we cite to. One of them is by Dylan Tokar in the Risk and Compliance uh, section of the Wall Street Journal. Then we also cite to Clara Hudson at Global Investigations Review. And uh, sometime today, a jury is expected to deliberate in this long-running case that is uh, testing the reach of the U.S. foreign bribery law. Uh, closing arguments were delivered Wednesday in the trial of Lawrence Hoskins, a former Alstom senior vice president. The U.S. government's case against Mr. Hoskins hinges on part in whether or not he qualifies as an agent under the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. To make the determination, the journey the jury will consider whether Mr. Hoskins, who was charged in 2013 with helping to organize the scheme to bribe Indonesian officials for a $118 million power contract, has sufficient ties to Alstom subsidiary, which is based in Connecticut. Uh, the question of agency is absolutely critical, says Christopher Morvello, a lawyer for Mr. Hoskins. Mr. Hoskins couldn't be found guilty of any FPA-related charges unless jurors first concluded beyond a reasonable doubt that the former executive was an agent of the U.S. subsidiary. Prosecutors allege that Hoskins acted as an agent of Alstom Power, Inc., API, the former subsidiary, which served as headquarters for Alstom's world-class boiler business. He did so by supporting API's bid to secure Indonesian's power contract, known as the Tarahan Project, including by helping to hire two consultants who allegedly paid bribes. The defendant very clearly was working on behalf of API, said one of the prosecutors, Dan Kahn from the DOJ. But lawyer Sir Hoskins, a British national who worked in the suburban Paris, said he never even visited the U.S. during his three years. So uh, this really comes down to uh, something that has been brewing since 2013 to find out uh, exactly what an agent is. And this ruling could have some far-reaching effects and in other individual prosecutions of the FCPA. So, Jay, this is uh, really interesting because you have the rather unique situation where it's clear uh, Hoskins has admitted to having engaged in bribery and corruption. Yet that's really not the issue here. The issue is, was he an agent of the U.S. company? The uh, prosecutor said that um, he was an agent, and Frederick Periucci, who previously uh, had pled guilty and served, I believe, a three-year prison sentence for his part in this crime, who was um, in the U.S. subsidiary, ran, uh, the prosecutor said he ran the show. And the defense, uh, con- conversely and perhaps counterintuitively, said, no, no, Hoskins ran the show. Uh, so you have the anomaly of somebody admitting they uh, engaged in bribery and corruption, or at least evidence put forward to that, and then uh, saying that it was their show. Uh, and it wasn't the show of the U.S. subsidiary, because if it was the show of the U.S. subsidiary, he was an agent of the U.S. subsidiary. So the mere fact he didn't come to the U.S. in this day and age is really of little import, although that could have an, an interesting impact on the jury. So you're absolutely right. This case could have far-reaching uh uh, impact if the Department of Justice uh, it prevails in this case. I think it will reopen the doors to bringing uh, claims against foreign nationals who never came to the U.S. And if it doesn't, it, it may uh, that this may be how U.S. companies uh, start engaging in bribery and corruption by uh, having their foreign subsidiaries uh, just do all the bribery and corruption and claim, oh no, it was all them. So. 
Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this uh, happens or this plays out. The jury got the case. I don't know if they'll come back on Friday or they'll deliberate further, but uh, very interesting case and uh, one everybody's watching. So continuing the trend of blockbuster cases, Tom, you spent a good part of your week uh, taking a look at the implications from the unit oil guilty pleas. What did, what did you have to say about this? Well, Jay, um, I took a really deep dive into this case this week, and they had a lot of extraordinarily interesting things uh, to consider. So um, on the first day on Monday, uh, that happened to be the nine-year anniversary of the biggest um, one-day settlement of FCPA cases. It was called a Panel Penal Settlement Day. And there were six um, energy co- companies from Houston that settled that day, uh, in addition to Panel Pena. Well, Unoil Oil, in the uh, information, which is the criminal information, which provides the background to the file, to the guilty plea of the um, CEO and COO, there were 25 companies listed. They were not named, but they were pretty well identified. And if you looked at news reports over the years, compared it to the list, which included um, location, industry, and the bribes or the... Um, um, conduct that the companies engaged in, uh, it was pretty easy to identify them. Uh, so you have 25 companies who at least 25 uh, that are going to have to settle FCPA cases. So that was very interesting. And I asked the question, are you on the list? Then I took a look at the bribery schemes involved. Some were sophisticated, some were straightforward, but lots of information for the compliance practitioner. Today, I considered the fraudulently obtained certifications and why a certification is only one piece of information, and you need to uh, really consider that uh, as part of your uh, due diligence process, but it's only one, and uh, you can't rely on it. Doing due diligence does not tell you who's going to pay bribes and who's not. Uh, it's there to create a legal defense, and your legal defense relates to the other components of your five-step life cycle management of third parties that you should engage in. If you don't know what they are, call me. I'm happy to provide training for you. And tomorrow on Friday, when this podcast goes up, I'm going to look at what it all means going forward. Mike Volkoff also took a look at it from the former prosecutorial perspective, as he's a former DOJ prosecutor. And he had, his interesting insight was the following, Jay. The guilty pleas were in April 2018. So that's almost 18 months before they were unsealed. And the unsealing means that the defendants are either at the end of their cooperation and useful life to the prosecutors or near that end. And they have another six months before they are sentenced, so they may have some additional information. But um, a really fascinating uh, deep dive that I took into it this week. So uh, back into the courts again. Uh, The SEC faces another disgorgement challenge. We've got this from two different sources, from Adam Dobrek at Global Investigations Review, and then we also have a little bit of a deeper dive with some more uh, legal sites on the NYU Compliance and Enforcement blog. On November 1st, the Supreme Court uh, agreed to hear a challenge to the U.S. Security and Exchange Commission's right to seek disgorgements from federal court. The case Liu et al. versus SEC concerns whether the regulator can sink almost $27 million in disgorgement from Charles Liu and Jay Wang a couple who were found by a federal court in 2016 to have defrauded forward investors. The pair argue that the SEC has sought disgorgement in federal court based simply on past practice 
rather than any clear authority. Um, in Kokesh, the Supreme Court had said that the SEC's ability to seek disgorgement is subject to a five-year statute of limitations that applies to penalties. That's because the Supreme Court said the SEC's use of disgorgement is punitive in nature. The SEC, however, contends that the Koresh, or rather Kokesh decision does not kill its ability to seek disgorgement in court. The regulator argued that disgorgement can be both an equitable remedy by recovering stolen funds and punitive in nature. An adverse ruling for the SEC would be a major blow for the regulator, said Nick Morgan, a partner at Paul Hastings, but it would not stop the regulator from seeking disgorgement. Kara Brockmeyer, who previously led the SEC's FCPA unit until 2017, said she's watching the case for any other matters that the Supreme Court might address. One of the issues worth watching is how disgorgement is calculated. The couple have argued that they should be able to deduct $16 million in legitimate business expenses from the disgorgement. So uh, that is what's in line. What do you have to say about it, Tom? So, Jay, on the one hand, you would think if the Supreme Court was not going to rule or rather was going to uphold disgorgement, they would not take the case. So that means there are at least four votes to overturn disgorgement. And that obviously would be uh, very damaging to the Securities and Exchange Commission. But it takes five votes to uh, overturn uh, disgorgement. So it's unclear whether they, they will get five votes uh, in the Supreme Court. And Kara, Kara's observation that uh, there should, there could or should be business deductions to disgorgement has been a longstanding argument because right now it's just the revenue you generate uh, from your ill-gotten gain, not um, the net profit. So uh, interesting case. Uh, it would really damage, I think, the Securities and Exchange Commission's ability to go after wrongdoers, uh, they had their wings clipped uh, with a five-year uh, statute of limitations they can go back on uh, earlier this year. So it's going to be interesting to see what this Supreme Court uh, really um, will do to them in this case. So uh, next up, Tom, uh, CCI Corporate uh, Compliance Insights starts a great new section called New Voices, focusing on young compliance professionals the first is by Margarita Darolenko on confessions of a new mom and compliance professional. Right. So kudos to uh, Sarah Haddon at CCI coming up with a great new feature, new voices. It's the showcase to uh, it's a way to showcase the fresh perspective by those who are new to careers and compliance. And the first article appropriate enough uh, talks about uh, a new mom and children. And uh, it's really interesting kind of as she talks about her experiences and compliance uh, as a uh, fresh face in compliance and the stages she went through. I was particularly intrigued, uh, uh, Jay, and, and I don't know what uh, the Rosen family experience was um, in becoming parents. I know, obviously, of course, about what the girls had to go through and, and um, you guys had to go through uh, because they were preemies. But uh, I was interested that she and her husband studied up uh, to become parents and uh, uh, become uh, create a family. And I just thought, gosh, of all the things that uh, you can get out of a book, being a parent is not one of them. Uh, so um, I don't know what your experience may have been in that. Um, and really nothing prepared me for parenthood. Uh, but uh, I, I lived and learned, and I think as most of us did, 
for some reason, uh, I didn't get a copy of the parenting manual. Uh, I don't know if I wasn't on the distribution list or, or the bookstore was out that day. But uh, she talks about some of the things, the challenges. She also talked about the challenge of being a compliance professional and a new mother um, at the same time. And, and then how the, her compliance career really mirrored and mimicked uh, some of the things that uh, she was going through as a parent. And I found that very interesting. It's a wealth art thought out article. Uh, kudos to Margarita for posting it. She really, I thought, sort of bared her soul quite a bit. And then uh, once again, kudos to Sarah Haddon. She's just really taken CCI in some very different directions that have uh, made it one of the leading uh, platforms uh, in the compliance space. So uh, next up, we've got uh, something coming to us for our friend Jonathan Marks uh, at his uh, board blog. And uh, this is the time of the season uh, when we start to get some uh, end of the year research coming out. And uh, Jonathan talks about um, a study by Deloitte and Forbes and also uh, some information that came out from um, the Red Flag Group. And this is all concerning reputational risk, which can damage the most well-crafted business strategies and is a growing challenge that companies around the world are still learning how to manage. By definition, reputational risk refers to the potential for negative publicity, public perception, or controllable events to adversely impact a company's reputation and therefore affecting its revenue. Board directors covet the company's reputation because it's their most valuable asset. In a study by Deloitte and Forbes, this has been affirmed, uh, but should not surprise anyone. Senior level executives also agreed that the company's reputation presented the greatest risk to the company's ability to achieve their strategies. In the red group, excuse me, in the red flag group's recently conducted survey, they asked 20 questions and highlights of the survey include the biggest perceived threats versus biggest actual threats, the relationship between reputational risk and legal risk, risk-related attitudes of external stakeholders, those consumers, investors, and media, and finally, the relationship between risk ownership and risk mitigation. According to the survey, the majority believe that legal and reputational risks are approximately the same. What is also interesting is that the survey revealed that a current employee's actions cause the most harm to reputation. Alternatively, the threat is from within. And as previously mentioned, current employees present the highest risk to the company's reputation. Um, some key risks, some keys to managing reputa- reputational risk include you looking at reputational risk as part of an overall risk management strategy, ensuring your enterprise risk assessment proactively identifies, prioritizes, and manages key risks, ensuring policies, procedures, and controls are in place, training your employees and external parties appropriately, understanding stakeholders' expectations, communicating prioritized risks and risk management, and having a risk management plan in place. Reputational risk is real, which means that companies should continue to improve their capabilities for managing this. Leading organizations already treat reputation risk as a strategic risk, which is an accelerating trend and a tactic that leads to the creation and preservation of value. An effective approach to managing reputation risk requires sustained effort before, during, and after a crisis. And as Jonathan says, reputational risk management does not have a start or end date. So, Jay, we have uh, another interpretation of a case that came out in May that was called United States versus Conley. 
In this case, uh, the judge, Judge McMahon, McMahon, looked at whether or not the Department of Justice controlled the internal investigation against the um, defendant. And the significance was if the Department of Justice did, and uh, if there was what's called compelled testimony, then that testimony could not be used against the defendant. The judge found that there was compelled testimony, meaning that uh, the internal investigation basically told Mr. Connolly, you either uh, cooperate with us or uh, we will fire you, but that the actual testimony elicited was not used at trial. This was a LIBOR investigation at Deutsche Bank. And in an article in the New York University uh, Compliance and Enforcement blog, Frederick Davis, and of counsel at um, Du Bois and Plimpton, said there's another issue that needs to be considered. And frankly, I had not thought of this, but this could be um, significant. And that is around blocking statutes. And blocking statutes are laws that attempt to impose territorial sovereignty over access to information by prohibiting or limiting the international transfer of information gathered locally for use by a foreign government. Now, that does not apply to civil litigation because that's civil and it does involve the government. So, Jay, if company you were, or, uh, you had a French subsidiary and you wanted, uh, you got sued uh, and you needed information out of it, you could go over and take discovery there and you could bring it back to the U.S. That's not the situation here. Uh, a blocking statute prohibits a uh, foreign government from getting evidence kind of outside their evidence protocols uh, in bilateral treaties with um, between countries and multiple uh, multiple treaties or multi-party treaties. Judge McMahon's uh, opinion did not address that, but it may uh, um, come into play uh, outside the United States to the point where the lawyers who did this, uh, the lawyers from the uh, the private firm involved. Um, may have uh, engaged in legal violations um, in the countries where they took this uh, testimony, and it was in uh, France and England. So um, this this is a really interesting interpretation of the Connolly case. Um, Davis really says the judge excoriated uh, the U.S. Department of Justice in this case for running uh, the Deutsche Bank investigation. Paul Weiss was the firm who uh, did the investigation, and they basically had marching orders from the DOJ. So um, this I wouldn't say this is an unintended consequence, but it's certainly a consequence of the court's ruling and what this may do to the, um, the lawyers involved and lawyers doing this in the future because um, it could sub- subject lawyers who go overseas to take evidence uh, at the direction of the DOJ. And frankly, Jay, it's always at the direction of the DOJ. The DOJ tried to claim that, well, not really. Uh, we may have suggested here and there, but we didn't run it. Well, they ran it. And that that is really going to be a problem going forward. And this this article points out it could be a very big problem for the, uh, the individual lawyers who are doing the internal investigations in a way that none of us had really considered previously. Well, we'll, we'll definitely watch that uh, in the future. Uh, next up, uh, I continue my exploration on monitoring in an M&A context in, uh, on CCI, Corporate Compliant Insights. 
And this week I take a look and ask the question, how should you plan your post-acquisition merger strategy? To plan your post-acquisition -merge, post merger strategy, first you should start with the Department of Justice and the information contained in various resolution documents on the DOJ's websites. These documents stress that an acquiring entity apply or ascertain that its code of conduct, policies, and procedures regarding corruption are consistent with the acquired company's policies and procedures. If they are not consistent, the acquiring company should apply its code of conduct. There must also be a forensic audit to see if any FCPA issues pop up. The same language was brought forward in the 2012 FCPA guidance. Many requirements were clar clarified in 2017 with the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, and then that was updated again this year in 2019. Issues involved include looking at the due diligence process. Was the misconduct or risk or of misconduct identified during due diligence? Integration in the M&A process. How has the compliance function been integrated? and processes connecting due diligence to implementation. These issues demonstrate there is a continuum from pre-acquisition into post-closing and that each step builds on the prior one. Moreover, under the recent addendum to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, the safe harbor advocated by practitioners such as Mike Volkoff have now been memorialized in the U.S. Attorney Manuals. Here are some examples of the, what the DOJ expects to see. If pre-acquisition due diligence is performed correctly, it will identify risks associated with the target and a risk assessment of that company should follow. Some of the things you would specifically look for in an integration plan are around internal controls. This documentation component is crucial, and if no plan is followed, it's extremely hard to demonstrate the pre- and post-acquisition due diligence to an external entity like the DOJ. The real issue has to do with how does a company demonstrate to a government regulator that they have done everything possible to identify risk associated with, conduct, with corruption and misconduct. Finally, let's consider why an independent monitor may be useful in this area. One of the ways we've seen this work at affiliated monitors is to help ally some of the concerns around an acquisition. The process allows the determination of whether there has been, in fact, full integration, whether employees understand their responsibilities and are comfortable reporting issues to their new colleagues. This can be used to demonstrate to the DOJ or anyone else that might be looking to ascertain this, that the company has performed adequate due diligence. Please join me next week on CCI when I will consider the types of things that a monitor would review to determine if a company has adequately, excuse me, adequately considered ethics and compliance during the M&A process. So, Jay, for our next story, we have an article from Jonathan Rausch on his always fabulous uh, blog, Dipping Through Geometries. And Jonathan really, he, he takes a look at some different things than many of the other commentators, including myself, look at and uh, has a much broader remit in terms of uh, looking uh, outside the United States at a variety of, of uh, white-collar type issues. And he comes up with a... Uh, corruption case out of Spain where the Spanish high court charged a Spanish construction company with an 82 million euro bribery scheme in Panama. It relates to the Odebrecht uh, investigation and uh, Odebrecht used many Spanish companies to launder money from bribes paid by various construction companies in, in uh, exchange for uh, contract awards. 
and this uh, prosecution as a result of that. So um, I think it's it's uh, significant that we have a Spanish court bringing a claim. Uh, it's also significant that this, this was uh, uh, a fallout from Odebrecht. Uh, the case continues to send ripples through um, not only Brazil and the rest of Latin America, but now reaching over into Spain. So kudos to Jonathan or John Roush for bringing this to our attention. Cool. So uh, next up, we've got something from the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly in Cambridge, Massachusetts, writes in his always interesting radical compliance blog, excuse me, blog, that now it's time to <laughs> now it's time to brace for procurement compliance. The Justice Department is launching a new task force to crack down on procurement fraud. So corporate company office, compliance officers should brace for a new wave of interest in how your employees chat with rivals and approach bidding on government contracts. The dog and pony show happened in D.C. on Tuesday, complete with a press conference and speeches by Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, no relation, and Antitrust Chief McCon Delarim. The Antitrust Division will take point heading the new Procurement Collusion Strike Force, or the PCSF, that will coordinate with 13 U.S. attorneys around the country. Rosen and Delarim even rolled out a dedicated website for the Procurement Collusion, Collusion Strike Force, PCFS, where people can review federal antitrust law. And here's where compliance officers airship perk up, report suspected criminal activity affecting public procurement. Now has FCPA employment also turned into a money, now that FCPA uh, enforcement is turned into a money-making vehicle for the Department of Justice and a way for underpaid prosecutors to advance their careers when they go into the private sector, sure. But that doesn't mean vigorous FCPA enforcement is wrong. One can't help but wonder if Rosen just laid the cornerstone for a new structure that will do the same for procurement. So uh, there seems to be a lot of different organizations, a lot of moving pieces. It'll be interesting to see whether or not this comes together. Uh, Matt wraps up his um, article by saying, so clearly the enforcement risk for procurement fraud is going up. Del Rahim is also trying to give companies an out in the form of more reward for taking compliance seriously. But that does mean that companies will need to take procurement fraud seriously and in their compliance programs, training, internal reporting, and voluntary disclosure data analytics. The good thing is the compliance partner is well-versed with handling some of these things, so uh, they should be able to take the lead on this front. Anything else in your end, Tom? So, Jay, um, what about the other FCPA case that's going on? Do you know about that one? No. It's, it's all the way down at number 10. How important can it be? Exactly. So everyone, and I mean everyone, has focused on Hoskins. There's actually another FCPA case going to trial where the former co-president of Transportation Logics International is um, uh, accused of conspiracy uh, to pay bribes. This is an older, I don't say older, a uh, ongoing FCPA case where the company pled guilty to or, or was found to have violated the FCPA to secure contracts from a Russian state uranium supplier. And um, the uh, former co-president, Mark Lambert, is uh, on trial for uh, money laundering and FCPA violations. The um, um, 
in the article we cite to, which is from Mark uh, Bernardini from Law 360, he talks about some of the evidence where the uh, cooperating witness against him, his former uh, co-CEO, um, was uh, had a very thorough and a difficult cross-examination based upon some different uh, types, different dates he had given for the conspiracy itself, obviously testing his credibility. The, uh, the witness um, uh, had um, given multiple dates for when the bribery scheme occurred. So uh, really fascinating that two FCPA-related uh, cases were go to trial at the same time. That's really just the luck of the draw. Uh, other than that, I don't think there's anything you can read into that, certainly not that the DOJ is now prosecuting individuals. It may be that individuals are feeling that they've got nothing to lose uh, from going to trial. But still, in view of the fact of the few, the uh, anti-plethora of FCPA cases that go to trial, to have two going on at the same time is fairly extraordinary. So we're going to keep a watch on this one. It's uh, not to the jury yet, so we don't know how it's going to end out, but we'll watch it just as we're watching Hoskins. So uh, at this point in our usual This Week in FCPA podcast, uh, we talk about some of the great podcasts that you've done throughout the week. And my question for you before you start to recap, if uh, Matt Kelly is the coolest guy in compliance, is Ronnie Feldman the funniest guy in compliance? Why don't you tell us what you and Ronnie talked about this week? You know, Ronnie may hold that moniker, Jay. He is certainly a funny guy. Ronnie Feldman is uh, a Second City alumnus. And he went off to do uh, compliance training and communication at his company. And um, if you've been to any compliance conferences, hopefully you've met Ronnie. Uh, he's always there. He's always got a big smile and uh, a different way of looking at things, a very different way. Certainly different from Lawyer Tom, that's for sure. And so we decided it might be fun to get together and do a podcast, me talking to Ronnie, Ronnie talking to me, Ronnie talking to some of the the people that uh, he has uh, worked with over the years. And our podcast is called Creativity and Compliance. And it's, and it's really both because Ronnie brings a creative mind and I bring a little more focused compliance mind. And we decided, Jay, to celebrate. We're actually in the midst of or near the end of Corporate Compliance and Ethics Week for 2019. So we wanted to do something to celebrate this. And so we did a short a podcast every day this week on different things you can do to communicate within your compliance program. Uh, we started on Monday with uh, the petting zoo, and we talked about talk shows. Uh, yesterday it was contests and games. Today it was keynotes and speakers. Uh, memo to everyone out there, if you want me to do a keynote, I'm available. And then uh, tomorrow we take a look at how you should use all of this going forward. And compliance week should not be your be-all, end-all, but really your stepping stone. So um, whereas you might not be the monkey's stepping stone, Compliance Week should be your stepping stone. So uh, going forward, uh, I am your stepping stone. It was a great series. Ronnie's a great guy. Uh, check him out. L-E, uh, L.E. Creative, I believe, is his company. And um, he, he's got some really interesting and fascinating uh, different communication styles. I can't emphasize the difference in perspective he has and using improv as not simply a communication tool, but actually it turned, it began as a philosophy to help people, uh, injured people and uh, 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 challenge people 
communicate in a way that wasn't being used before. And it actually was developed in Chicago. And that's why where Second City, of course, picked on it. So check it out on the Compliance Podcast Network. The specific podcast is Creativity and Compliance. I know you'll get something out of it. So, Tom, any uh, reflections on your week in Brazil? You know, it was a great week, Jay, and, and this was, I think, probably uh, the biggest aha moment I had. I was at the uh, I was at the Refinity Brazilian Risk Summit this year. This is the third conference I've been to in Brazil in six years. And five years ago, at the con- first time uh, I came to a conference, or six years ago, I came to a conference in uh, Sao Paulo. It uh, occurred to me that Brazilian compliance programs were about five years behind the United States. As I was sitting there uh, Wednesday, it dawned on me that uh, compliance programs in Brazil have pretty much caught up to the United States. The prosecutors, excuse me, the regulators and prosecutors who spoke emphasized the need for risk-based approaches and culture assessments and monitoring culture. They talked about technological enhancements for ongoing monitoring uh, there were, of course, the standard things about policies and procedures, but they were way beyond that. And then when I heard the company representatives talk, they talked about the risk their company faced that they had assessed. Companies in the same industry who had different risks because they're, they had different personnel, they had different sales models, they had different products, they had different services, yet they were uh, close competitors. So um, it was very, very interesting. It was very, very heartening. The level of um, enthusiasm for compliance amongst the Brazilian cadre of compliance practitioners is extraordinarily high. They want to do the right thing. They want to bring compliance and ethics and culture to Brazil. Um, so I was just a hard, uh, just a, did a fabulous job uh, in their conference. And there was about 400 people there, uh, really good uh, information, um, I can't really say enough about the Brazilian compliance scene and how much it's evolved. And it's if if America's one A, they're certainly one B. Yeah, I just uh, I have built so many real meaningful relationships with folks uh, via LinkedIn at conferences, and I've never been to Brazil yet. So if uh, any clients would like to hire us and have us work in Brazil, I'd be happy to do so. Well, I think uh, AMI needs to to be in Brazil. That's all I would say about that. For Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for This Week in FCPA, episode 179 for the week ending November 8th, 2019, the Live from Sao Paulo edition. Uh, thanks for uh, deciding to spend some time with us, and have a great week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for uh, checking out This Week in FCPA, episode 179. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the uh, interesting stories in the compliance and ethics world. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.